This is episode um, 353 of PZ's podcast entitled The Monster Swim, which was uh, written and performed by um, Bobby Boris Pickett and the Crypt Kicker 5 in 1964. The Monster Swim was the follow-up hit, in quotes, to The Monster Mash by the same artists in 1963. And what this... um, cast is about is something very wonderful that has happened with a sequel and um, something really good in life, something that is really true inevitably has a sequel because true truth is enduring. Love is enduring. The real fundamental providential God-given basis of life, human life, is uh, is going to be inevitably repetitive. That's why a great book by Dickens has you in it. A great book by Victor Hugo has you in it because uh, the greatest truths of a life are repetitive. And what happened to me about, oh, six years ago, seven years ago, was repeated recently. And I want to talk about the repetition of what's really, really important. And then, I mean, couldn't be more important. And then uh, we're going to finish with The Monster Jerk, which came out the exact same time as The Monster Swim came out but with a more what we might call a northern soul or even a Motown-sounding sound. And that was um, created, the last song of the cast, by Don Hinson and the Rigamorticians. That's a lot of information, but the repetition of something important. I think I've told you that about 
five or six or seven, maybe even eight years ago, the uh, soul of my oldest childhood friend appeared to me after his death in the chapel of All Saints Episcopal Church, Winter Park, Florida. I won't go to the details, there's no need to, but this friend appeared to me, but in the form of the way he was when he was 10, 11, and 12, you might say, before puberty as a child, in other words, a little boy. We were little boys together, and he, um, very much admiring the monster swim, but he um, came and sat with me, his most idyllic, idealized self, not the self that died alone and um, unhappy and um, with all sorts of complications that were unfortunate, but the child, the soul of this man as it as God had made it, made him. And he sat next to me and we sat together as I meditated and had my eyes closed, but I knew it was he and I could see him. I could see him in my inward eye and in a way in my regular opened eye. He didn't hold my hand, but he sat very close and we looked in the same direction and he was there for about five minutes until he disappeared. And I had the overwhelming conviction, impression that he had appeared as he was in his best self. That happened about, oh, about a year after he died. Other things had happened the day he died, which uh, told me that he was reaching out to me I want to say paranormally that night, but then he appeared. But the sequel to that extraordinary experience happened, as I mentioned a little bit a few times ago, and I'm not going to go into detail. And I may um, hide it a little bit more, but um, the soul of my college roommate appeared to me about three weeks ago, the night he died, and I've talked about it. But the presence of this man overwhelmingly appeared and directed me towards something he had written 51 years ago, which I read to my astonishment, not knowing that he was dying at that moment. I had absolutely no idea, and I normally don't think about this person, certainly hadn't. And then um, a letter he had written, a powerful, generous, extraordinarily um, unself-serving interpretation of his life and my life, really, as his roommate and friend, came out through this letter, and I was so impressed by it that I wrote him a letter where he lives far away from here and didn't put a return address on it because I didn't want to start a contact that wasn't, at this point, seemed uh, superfluous. It wasn't superfluous, but I did write him a note without a return address on the envelope, praising him for what, um, I, I put it, anyway, uh, praising him for what he had uh, done. And then through a most unusual website that had nothing to do with the person, nothing to do with the person, I found out to my great surprise and everyone else's surprise almost that he had died and he had died that night, the night he had appeared to me and I had written the letter about two days, a day or two or maybe three had sent it after he had died not knowing that he had died. Now that was um, kind of the sequel to what had happened with my childhood friend and it told me that there's far more than... Uh, we realize, Horatio, there's many, many more things. And uh, the soul of this roommate had clearly come to me in his most, he had directed me towards a letter that reflected his life in a most gracious and remarkable, true young way when he was 20, as opposed to the withdrawn and unhappy and um, lonely human being, alone human being that died the night I 
was pointed to the letter. So the soul comes to you when you're the, of the person at his finest, the God-given part, the way he was created by God, the way he was meant to be. And that was very striking. I think I told you once that I was... Um, visiting a lady who was dying named Mrs. Coulter, a very, very old-school New York sort of 500 uh, widow, and she was dying. I was at Grace Church uh, downtown at the time and uh, visited her, and uh, she said to me, Mr. Zoll, I have... Um, she described being buried, married by Walter Russell Bowie in her li- family's living room of the apartment in which she still was living and dying. And she said, what will heaven be like? And what I was given to say was that, well, it, it'll, be, it'll be like your happiest moment. You, the person you will, what will, what will, what will I be like in heaven was really a more precise way of putting what she said. She said, I will, and I said to her, it was a given answer. The Holy Spirit filled me at that point. I said, well, you will be the, the happiest self uh, of your life, the time when you were at your dearest, happiest, most beloved and most loving and most unaffected and most deeply, deeply a peaceful and joyful person that you were, and she said, "Well, that would that would unlike that would definitely be." As I walked down the aisle of my parents' house, saw the smiling face of the rector of Grace Church, Doctor Bowie, and saw the smiling face of my the man who to whom I would be married that afternoon, and that is the happiest time. And I said to her, "Well, Mrs. Coulter, that is what it will feel like in heaven." Now I got the word. Oh, the next morning that Mrs. Coulter died. About two hours, maybe three, but no more than three hours after I visited her. And she sort of lay back, and even when I was there, she said, Oh, that's thank you, thank you. And she died. She was ready, and uh, she probably didn't, her ka, as the Eastern religions put it, her soul probably didn't go flitting around trying to um, present herself and contact the being that she was at that very special moment because she was in touch with it before she died unlike my roommate whom I did not have the opportunity to reassure as he was dying nor my friend in Las Vegas who was dying, childhood friend now I say that because um, there's something very important here something about the soul, I can't put it quite into words there's something very important I was um, contacted the uh, former spouse of uh, my college roommate to explain to um, her what had, uh, had happened on the night that her former husband had died. And there wasn't much interest. I understood that because of the long, long ago divorce, but I thought there might be. So then I tried the man's uh, son. I, I thought maybe he, who, who loved his father. And even he, he was modestly almost disinterested, but didn't seem very interested. And I couldn't quite believe it because I thought, well, you know, if Mary were to die tomorrow and then in three months or two weeks or five days or two years, someone were to call me who I barely knew, but say, you know, um, Mary's come to me. I've seen Mary. I I can't explain it, but Mary's come to me and her, I feel like she's visited me and, and she has had a message for you. I mean, I'd fly to China, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you fly to China if the person you love the most having died appeared or was said to appear to a somewhat trustworthy witness, not just an, a sensationalist or a crazy person, but someone whom, who, who wouldn't say it lightly and for whom it would be meaningful and who had called me, I would go, I'd fly to China. I mean, immediately, like that night. I don't care what it costs. Well, um, I was reminded of Ann Charters, the very distinguished and very, very authoritative biographer of Jack Kerouac, who, after Kerouac died, was in, uh, she had met him once when he was live shortly before he died, and she was in Paris, 
quite a few years after Kerouac had died, and I believe it was her husband. But someone told Anne that Kerouac had appeared to them or spoken to them or his presence had been palpable in the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris. And when Anne heard it, she rushed, she, she scrambled over, as we say. She tore over to, uh, to the cathedral and sat because Kerouac had spent time when he was alive, quite a bit of time in Paris. Some wonderful things were composed, minor, minor things, but real things. And she, um, she sat there hoping to hear from Jack there. I mean, who who wouldn't who really cared in some way be interested to to make contact? Well, I say that to you, and that's really all I wanted to say. Um, that uh, the uh, the power of uh, a song had a sequel in my life, and it might have a sequel again, um, in which the soul of the departed appears. Now I'll close by just saying that, you know, years ago I wrote uh, an essay for uh, The Mockingbird Goes to the Movies book, which I think is excellent, the book, the collection. But I was saying something that I don't think anyone, I'd never read anything about it before, because, as you probably remember, Orson Welles' masterpiece, the follow-up to Citizen Kane, which he made, I think, in like 1944, 43-44, entitled The Magnificent Ambersons, is controversial because the ending was kind of not edited the way apparently... Orson Welles wanted to do it, or he left it in the hands of some assistants who cut corners and didn't edit it right, so the ending was spoiled, at least according to a number of people, although Welles never actually said spoiled, but it, was, it wasn't it was exactly as he meant it to be, <clears throat> and they speculate and they speculate, but no one ever actually, there is a reason why the ending was so challenging, which has nothing to do on spec with Orson Welles. The ending of The Magnificent Ambersons, which is about the decline over three generations of a very well-established Indiana family that sort of careens downward, downward mobility. And uh, the book ends very completely differently from the movie. That is to say, there's a a major twist at the end, an overwhelming twist, which the critics never mentioned. I don't think they probably read the book. And Orson Welles didn't mention it, except he did say that it was extremely hard to film anything transcendent. He couldn't, it was hard for him to film something that was sort of God, about God. He, he, he sort of got stuck when he tried to communicate religious truths, which he believed. He was a, he was a, a serious Christian, though not an active one, but a real Christian. That's clear from letters and interviews. But he, he couldn't, it was hard for him to really put into visual terms something transcendent. So he simply omitted the ending. And this is important because the ending is exactly what happened to me when I was trying to integrate what happened to my college roommate. And it, I'm in the immediate uh, afterglow of it with what happened with my child and best friend. I remembered uh, The Magnificent Amberson. So I went back and re- go back and get The Magnificent Ambersons, dear listener. It's very easy to get in a million different ways. It was the... Pulitzer Prize-winning novel at 1918, and uh, read the last sort of 15 pages, because the hero, Mr. Morgan, who is played by Joseph Cotton in the movie, um, is mourning moderately after some years the death of the woman that he loved, who married someone else and had a child by this husband that she married, not the hero who's mourning her, always in his life and sorrowful. And at one point, uh, something happens that causes him to think again about her, and he is so m- mortified by his regret over her and her, his feelings about her that he he does a very uncharacteristic thing, which is my telling you about my two visions, concrete visions of the souls of two dead people 
It's not a story. This actually happened. I can give you the chapter and verse. Um, the man in the Magnificent Ambersons novel by Booth Tarkington goes to consult a medium. He's in New York City on a business trip, and he breaks his usual habits, does something very unusual that none of us would normally do, although everybody listening to this podcast has done and is capable of doing, quote, something that nobody would think you were capable of doing. And he goes to see a kind of odd medium, a lady, a kind of frazzled, frowsy lady in a little flat downtown. And he, she, he pays her to go into sort of her medium state. And the woman he loved, who's been dead for some time, speaks to her. But really, Tarkington, who actually believed this, says in the most normal, real style, recounts it like a reporter would, the mediums embodying the spirit of the dead woman whom this man had valued so highly and had lost. And she speaks to him. And the woman named Isabella, I think it's actually Isabel, gives him a message, a message of powerful purpose, a message of extraordinary redemptive feeling, and he receives it. He receives the fact that the spirit of the departed woman whom he valued and uh, was precious to him spoke to him, and the woman spoke to him with a message that had to do with, with, the, with her son from whom he, as the woman who lost the woman he had hoped to marry but didn't, the estranged son of that woman by the man she did marry, she says to the hero, reconcile with him. She gives him work. Be kind. Reconcile him. And he does. And the conclusion of the novel is a miraculous reconciliation between two basically inimical, in inherently inimical enemies who apologize to one another with whom there is total forgiveness. And as a result, the hero's daughter from his earlier marriage marries the son of the woman that he loved, but who hadn't married him. And it is an extraordinary moment of unity, reconciliation, and concrete forgiveness, all brought about by the appearance of the soul of this woman to our man, Mr. Morgan, in the little house on a Highway 301 that says medium psychic. <laughs> you know, you pay $100 and you're going to get a, a word. Well, that happened to me. Happened to me twice. And I read The Magnificent Ambersons to read a very real authority, Booth Tarkington, on this question, who believed it and wrote it and described it. And it makes sense. Well, that's all I wanted to say. And I uh, hope you'll uh, uh, you'll go back and uh, think about your own experience with the souls of people you've loved. Maybe there was an unresolved relationship. Someone who died and you hated them or hated you. That's got to be worked on. But they, they might appear. You might pray for that. I honestly believe it. Thank you for listening. And we're going to finish with, as I said, the follow-up competitive single, to The Monster Swim, which you've heard, entitled The Monster Jerk, by Don Henson and the Rigamorticians. Love you. Oh, you can do it. Yes, you can. The Monster Jerk is crazy, man. Some do the monkey, but that's too much work. Uh, uh, uh. 
when time time come, huh? He jerks real good. He's a real swell. Huh? 